sisters, this is the last time I will speak in chapel here, and it's sad in one way, but uh, I thought of entitling the message, what do I say, is going, what do I say going out the door? <laughs> and I looked at uh, the scriptures, you know, Peter and Paul both book, wrote books just before they, they died, they were expecting to die, we know that from Second uh, Timothy 4 and 1 Peter 1, uh, but what did they want to say? <laughs> Uh, Paul and Peter both emphasize the Word of God. They've, Paul says, I've, I've fought the good fight. I've always hesitated to put myself in the same category and use that phrase and make myself equal with Paul. I mean, that's like uh, Bob Euchre back in the 1960s who was a second-string catcher who hit 200 and struck out 200 times and 700 times at bat. And that's sort of like him uh, comparing himself with Mickey Mantle. <laughs> But at least I'm trying. <laughs> and uh, as we look at this uh, passage today and, and consider Peter and Paul, one of the things that they did in the last thing they had to say, they, they wanted to say the most important things they possibly could say to their, uh, to their audience and to their readers. And they both emphasized the Word of God. Now, if you go into any of our classes, I don't care what class it is in the Bible department, you're going to hear an emphasis on the Word of God because that's who we are. doesn't matter what class it is, who the professor is, we're going to emphasize the Word of God. And I will emphasize the Word of God. It's not my entire message today, but there is one point I'm going to deal with the Word of God in my message today. Uh, but uh, this is, as I stand before you, I have to think, what is the most... <laughs> important thing I can say. Now, I'm not expecting to die, although uh, at my age, you know, every day you get up, it's a good day. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm not expecting to. I am expecting to go actually to Eagle, Idaho, and I will continue ministering there. I just won't get paid for it, but I will be in ministry. But what do I say as I'm leaving here today? And that's really what I want to talk about as, I, as, as we go along with. I am completing my, you know, in, in one sense, uh, uh, Dr. Duncan read off if you added him up. I started out in 1971, so this is my 46th year. I've overlapped. I've had some extra pastoral years while I was teaching and things like that. It's been a long time. Uh, but when I look back on these things and I look at it and I look out at you, it's not, it's not the years that are going to count. It's, it's what, what happens to, to you, what's going on in your lives. Uh, I can think of when I, you know, wherever I've been. I leave Talbot uh, Seminary at that time, now Talbot School of Theology, and uh, there were great students there. Uh, I think about them, and, and many of them I know about because they've far surpassed what I've done. And I think when I left Frenchtown Community Church, I was there for 15 years, I saw a lot of people grow in the Lord. I can think of some great examples, and I miss people. And my wife and I still keep in touch with those people, and uh, we miss them. And when I leave here, I'm going to miss you, and I'm going to miss the graduates that uh, have already graduated. I'm going to miss the new students coming in. And I feel, hopefully, a little bit like the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17, and he's talking about when he gets to glory. And, uh, he, and, and you know, when Paul gets up there, you think about all the things that Paul did. Traveled all over the known world. Suffered for Christ, at least four years in prison. 
Uh, he, was, he was beaten five times with, uh, with lashes, with whips. That's 190, 195 lashes on his back. Must have been, can you imagine what his back looked like? Beaten with rods, in dangers of the seas, all kinds of things. But he's, when he gets to heaven, he says, that's not what I'm, my boast is when I get before the Lord. Uh, that's not what I'm going to be talking about. And he reads in verse 17 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, For who is our hope or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord that He's coming? Paul's, Paul's hope for the future of any kind of reward was the people. Did he make an impact on people's lives? Not what he did. And I can talk about 46 years of service or how many years of teaching or how many years of pastoring. And I believe when I get to heaven, if I look at the Lord and He says, What did you do? And I spout off those things. He's going to look at it and says, no, I ask you, what did you do? <laughs> it's people that count. You count. Wherever I've been, I want to make an impact upon people. And hopefully, I haven't had all of you in class, but hopefully I've made an impact at least in some of your lives. And today I get to preach and maybe a little bit of impact in all of your lives. Because that's really what counts. I want you, and I'm going to be talking about what it is to be a good servant of Christ and I want you to be from this point on, maybe you already are, but to continue on even to the end of your life. Because let me tell you, I, was, I sat not in these seats, but in seats in chapel where you are when I was in school. And you're going to be really surprised how fast time moves. <laughs> and I want you to get to the end of your life and be able to say, I fought the good fight, like the Apostle Paul. I, I don't have anything to regret. I wouldn't change this. I wouldn't change that. But I did it right. I want you to be good servants of Jesus Christ. And I believe that Paul sets forth these basics about what it is to be a good servant. And the Word of God has to be a priority in that. And that's why I said I was going to speak on one point. This is the point. The Word of God has to be a priority in your life. And uh, when, it comes, <laughs> when it comes to the Word of God... And being a good servant, uh, I think Paul sort of hints in verse 7 of chapter 4, don't fill your mind with junk. <laughs> he talks about there have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, I, I feel for old I've known a lot of older women, and they've been great people. And I, and, but this is, Paul wrote it, and, and even, in the, even literally, if you translate it, the, the profane and worldly, old womanly myths are is really the way it translates. But even if we go beyond, you know, what they may say, you know, sometimes even when they're being uh, kind and gentle and doing right, they're still saying things that really don't help our spiritual growth. My grandmother, who died when I was 11, was a great storyteller. And when my brother and I were four and five, we'd go down and she'd tell us these stories. One day I was there by myself and I was out in the field with her. They had a farm. And we, there, was, there were cows out there, and one of the cows had a calf. And here's this five-year-old kid asking his grandmother, Grandma, where do calves come from? It was obviously a question she did not want to answer. <laughs> she said, oh, they just find them in hollow logs. <laughs> and so the rest of our time out in the field, I was trying to find a hollow log to find a calf. <laughs> and I got back home and I told my mother what my grandmother had said. My mother was a little shocked, and so she sat this five-year-old boy down, and in language a five-year-old boy could understand, she explained where calves came from. And you know what? When she was done, I still thought my grandmother's explanation was more logical. <laughs> uh, 
You know, that's, that's, the, that's the way, you know, there, there's some of these things. We don't want to fill our minds with junk. Sometimes with good intentions, but it still isn't going to come help us to grow. It's still not going to be what we need as believers to grow in Christ. And there's another thing that we need to watch as well. We need to watch out for experience. Some people just want to substitute experiences for the Word of God. And it doesn't work that way. You can't substitute experience for the Word of God. When my daughters were in high school, and they, in fact they graduated from Valley Christian High School in Missoula, Montana, and when they were there, there, was a, there were a number of people there. They had some good friends, and, and they came from all kinds of churches, uh, some a little more radical than others. There was one church in town that was very closely related or uh, like Benny Hinn and that kind of thing. And one of the girls, who was a nice girl, gave my daughter a book. And it was, called, it was called The God Chasers. It was by a man named Tommy Tenney, very popular with a certain people in the late 1990s. And I just decided, you know, maybe I had to look at this book before, you know, before I know what's in it. And I started making notes about what was wrong with it. By the end of chapter one, I had so many notes, I decided I was going to rewrite the book. And, and so, I, I, you know, I, it wasn't good. And so, but I remember one chapter in particular in there and one part of it. And this is what he said. He was talking, he said he was in a church in Houston, Texas. And that's as much as he said. That's as close to documentation as we can get. And Houston's a pretty big city. Sort of like saying, I was in a church in Los Angeles. Well, uh, Anyway, he goes on and he's talking about it. He said he was standing up in front of the, uh, the church with the pastor. He said there was a plexiglass pulpit here. And he says all of a sudden there was a flash of light. The pulpit split in two. The pastor was picked up, thrown in a corner. He was unconscious, but we knew he was all right, so we went on with the service. Folks, if this pulpit splits in two and I'm thrown in that corner and I'm unconscious, don't assume I'm all right. <laughs> Anyway, he goes on and continues to talk or continues to write about all of these so-called miracles that happened. And then this is the worst part. His conclusion to this is, this is what the church needs today. Not a bunch of crusty old love letters, but an experience with God. And I said, that is nothing but heresy. That is heresy. You know what Peter said about that? <laughs> he wasn't talking about Tommy Tenney, but he, it fits perfectly well. In 1 Peter, where Peter, or 2 Peter rather, chapter 1, where he's emphasizing the Word of God, Peter starts off talking about maybe the greatest experience that he had in all the time he was with Jesus. That's arguably, you can argue with me about that, whether it was or not, but I think it may be. And he's talk, he talks off that we, they didn't follow cleverly devised tales when he made me note to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he begins in verse 17 to describe the Mount of Transfiguration experience. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you go back to Matthew 17 and read it. Uh, but there they were, and there was Jesus in his future glorified body. Amazing. And here's Moses and Elijah, been dead for a long time, but they're standing there apparently in their future glorified bodies. And then there's a cloud over them, apparently the Shekinah glory, and out of that cloud comes a voice that says, This is my beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. He heard the, he heard the words of God the Father. Peter goes on, and he says in verse 19, So, and this is the New American Standard translation, So, in italics, so it's not really there, 
We have a prophetic, the prophetic word made, and made is in italics, not really there, more sure. And I really don't like the way the New American Standard translates it because it makes it sound, because he had this experience, what he writes is more sure. I think the ESV does it much better uh, where they said, we have a more sure prophetic word. We have a more certain prophetic word. More certain than what? More certain than this great experience in the Mount of Transfiguration. More, more certain than any experience, miraculous experience that you can have. You can gather up all the miracles in, inside the Bible, and they all happen, they're all true. Anything that you have ever seen, and the Word of God that you're holding in your hands is still a more certain resource than any of those things. You have to remember, this is the Word of God. That's why we emphasize it so much. And you're not going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ if you do not make this word a priority. It's better than old ladies' myths. It's more certain than any act or, of, or experience that you can have. And that's why when Paul and Peter, and they're ready to die, in second, when he writes 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, they are. That's why when they, when they are there, what do they emphasize? They're going to emphasize the most important thing that they can think of. And they emphasize the Word of God. We have the two strongest statements in the New Testament on inspiration of the Scriptures in these two books. Peter says in chapter 1, uh, verse 20, uh, he says, We know for certain that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men were moved by the Spirit of God. It's inspired. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired. A word that occurs no place else. It literally, it's God-breathed. They emphasize the Word of God. And so what does Paul say about the Word when he's dealing with good servant of Christ Jesus? Well, first of all, we saw what he didn't want them to do. But going back to verse 6, he says to Timothy, he says, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. I'm going to take the last one first, the sound doctrine which you have been following. That's a perfect tense. I know you just came here to hear some Greek today, so I want to throw a little bit of it in. But a perfect tense in Greek is a past action or something that's happened in the past and it has abiding results. And he says, Timothy, you have been following sound words, and it has abiding results in your life. Now, we know that in, from chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, that his grandmother and his, and his mother had taught him the Old Testament scriptures from the time that he was youth. He, they prepared him and prepared themselves, really, for the, the Apostle Paul bringing the gospel message to, to Lystra. In Acts 16, not too long after that experience, Paul needed another person and a, a, at least one more, probably two, Silas as well, to go with him on the second missionary journey. And here is Timothy. And Timothy had grown so much in a short time in the faith that, he was, that Paul chose him to go. And now as uh, 1 Timothy has been written, Timothy has been with Paul for 12, 13, 14 years. Can you imagine being with Paul, hearing all this teaching for all this time, probably has read all of the ten letters up to this point. This is the, probably the eleventh. Uh, he's probably read, you know, he's had opportunities to read Luke's Gospel, the book of Acts, Matthew, uh, perhaps even James. Uh, you know, this, this man has been in the Word of God. 
And so Paul says, you've been following this. It has its results. But you know, the implication is when you read the first part of this sentence, it isn't enough to rest on past laurels. When you graduate from here, I, if what, no matter what your major is, you'll all have at least a minor in Bible. And maybe even more if you're a Bible major. Certainly more if you're a Bible major. And, but if you stop and you say, well, I know it all now. I don't have to read any more scripture. I, I understand it. You're not going to even stay level. You're certainly not going to grow. You're not going to even stay level. You're going to drop off. You can't survive. You'll never be a good servant unless you're constantly in the Word of God. And that's why Paul says in the first part of this, he says, constantly nourished. Now, constantly in the New American Standards in italics, but the verb is a present tense. And so it is continually nourished, continually fed on the words of faith. That's what it's going to take in the future. You have to be continually fed on the Word of God. You can't let it drop off. You can't neglect it if you're going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And you've got to let the Holy Spirit use it. I'm not, I don't have time to go back and talk about uh, Colossians 3.16 in detail or, or, first, uh, or Ephesians 4.18. But Paul talks in Ephesians about being filled with the Spirit in a similar context. Uh, in Colossians, he says, uh, let the Word of God richly dwell in you. They, they, you know, they obviously have different uh, uh, emphases because he used different words, but they're related. The Holy, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and, you're, and he, as he's directing your life, you allow him to control your life, but he's going to control it through the Word of God. And the Word of God is not going to be richly dwelling in you unless you're allowing the Spirit of God to lead you and direct you. And it's important. Uh, how did Jesus uh, fight against the devil at the temptation? He quoted him Scripture. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The Word of God is important. But I also want to warn you, you just don't want to become a Bible encyclopedia. Now, you know, memorization is really important. The other, on Monday you heard Dr. Boland quote off a long passage of Scripture. I was impressed. I don't know about you. But I, what I'm going to say next doesn't apply to him because the Word of God does richly dwell in his life. But I remember when Dr. Boyd was here and he told about some of the people that he studied under at Hebrew Union College. That's a Jewish college where he learned Hebrew and more all the exotic Hebrew Old Testament or related languages. And he said, you know, there were some men back there on the faculty that had the entire Old Testament memorized in the original languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And some of them, even though they weren't believers, had memorized the entire New Testament in Greek. Now, I guarantee the Word of God isn't richly dwelling in their life because they're not even believers. Hopefully, the Lord will use it to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ someday. But that's not what, that's not what was going on there. So you, you want to make it more than simply knowledge in your head. You want the Holy Spirit of God to lead you and direct you and use the Word of God in your life. And when Paul goes on here, you know, Paul has said a number of things to Timothy in these passages. He tells him, fight the good fight. Does that a couple times here in 1 Timothy. He tells him to King James, for all you had to want to study to show yourself approved workman unto God. <laughs> uh, he tells Timothy to preach the word. He tells him to pre do, be the, do the work of an evangelist. And uh, some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not going to be a pastor. 
Well, that's all right, too, because no matter where you're at, whatever you're going to be, whether it's a brain surgeon, a musician, in the business world, you name it, wherever you're going, as a believer, you still want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, and so all these things apply. But Paul goes on to point out here, following uh, his discussion here in verse 6 and uh, a little bit of the negative aspect in verse 7, to imply where, where the Word of God and the study of the Word of God ought to lead in your life, and he says here, he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, godliness is an interesting word. <laughs> it's only used 15 times in the New Testament. <laughs> if you like statistics, four times in 2 Peter, two times in 2 Timothy, nine times in 1 Timothy. So it's only found in three books. And what even makes it harder a little bit is Paul and Peter don't, do not really define it. All they say about it is do it. And so they, they assume their readers know what they, what they mean when they say it. So I've looked at commentators. One commentator said, well, it just means be religious. And I thought, discipline yourself to be religious. I think that misses the point a bit. <laughs> Another one said, well, it means to be devout. Now, I, you know, be devoted, be devout, so you can be a devout religious person, I guess, or something. Or maybe there's nothing wrong with being devout or devoted. Uh, but I don't think, I think he's moving in the right direction, but I still don't think that's where it's going, or what, it's, what Paul has and Peter has in mind. The basic idea of this, of this word, and actually it's two words put together. There's a little word in front of it, a two-letter word, which means well. Um, you know, you did well. And then there's the other word, which is the main part of the word from which we probably should get our definition. And initially, and it wasn't, it, it, Paul didn't coin this word, or Peter, but initially it just meant to step back or step away from someone or a person. And if I step back here and I step away, I just step back from that pulpit. It didn't have any religious sense at all. It was just stepping away from something. Over a period of time, we find, though, that it had to do with stepping back in fear or awe of something. Something was so majestic, so awe-inspiring that you just moved away from it in fear or awe. And finally, it came to mean uh, reverence or worship. And when you pick that little word in front of it uh, on there, it, it means well-worship or an abundance of worship. And Paul says, I want you to discipline yourself for this purpose. <laughs> now... When he says discipline, obviously <laughs> that means it's going to take some time and energy. And I want to point out the word discipline here is not the word disciple or make disciples or become, or, or, uh, become a disciple in the Gospels. Uh, this is another word. This is an athletic term. This is a term which uh, we get our word gymnasium from. And interestingly, or maybe I, at least I find it interesting, when he says in verse 8, bodily discipline, that word discipline is just the noun form of this verb. It's the same thing. It's, 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 a, it's an athletic term. So when you're talking about this kind of discipline, it takes, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. And uh, he begins to compare it with bodily discipline in the next verse. Now... <laughs> By the way, congratulations to the men and women's basketball teams, uh, again. Uh, but, and uh, when I'm talking about bodily discipline, they're a good example 
of it took time and energy to get there. And I don't care what athlete, what sport you're in, golf, uh, soccer, you name it. Can't name them all here. Uh, but you just didn't wake up one day and start shooting baskets, deliver, uh, dribbling the basketball. It took time, it took effort, and you're still working at it. You're still training to do that every single day. It takes hard work. I, I think of my, my son uh, because uh, I, the bodily discipline is only of little profit. My son does not look like me. Uh, and it's not just because he's two and a half inches taller than I am. He's about 30 or 40 pounds heavier, and it's not because he needs to lose weight like I do. He's got about 6% body fat, and he is in the gym every single day lifting weights. He looks like a little Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and, and he doesn't, and when I tell him bodily discipline is only of a little profit, uh, you know, he works so hard at it, that's not his favorite verse. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it, and, and godliness, if it takes, you know, you look at that way, if it takes that much work to, to be, have bodily discipline, it's, gonna, it's the same word that describes here, we have to work at being godly. Godliness takes work, it takes effort, and you can't do it without the Word of God. That, the, the Word of God is your gymnasium. It's not where we, and it does take some practice outside of the Word as well, but still, it's, it's, that's there. And so when we go over this next verse, bodily discipline is only of a little profit. You notice there, it doesn't say it's no profit. Uh, just to, for all of you people that are really involved in athletics and other things and you work hard, it doesn't say it's no profit. In fact, in this life, it can be probably a great deal of profit. You probably feel better, look better, have more fun, and we could probably go on down the list. And for 60, 70, 80 years, whatever, however long the Lord leaves you here, if you've got good bodily discipline, it's a benefit to you, and in your living life probably to the fullest. But what Paul is comparing here is this life with eternity. Bodily discipline is only for this life. Godliness is forever, clear through eternity. And you know what? When the resurrection comes, I'm going to have a better body than my son. <laughs> Bodily discipline's not an issue then. But godliness will be an issue for the present life and the life to come. That's, why, that's what the comparison is. And so Paul says here, you need to have godliness. That needs to be a characteristic of your life. And it takes hard work. And so when we look at this, though, we still say, well, what, what's involved in this? What is involved in godliness? And I, I look at a couple of verses here later on, in, particularly in chapter 6. And, and Paul gets over here to verse 11 of chapter 6, and he tells Timothy there's certain things like the love of money and things like that. You need to flee from these things, you man of God. And then he says, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. Now, when I first started thinking about godliness, if somebody would have asked me what I think godliness is, I probably would have said to them, oh, I think that it's righteousness and I think it's faith and it's love and so forth. But here it is, godliness is in a list with these things, distinct from these things. But the one thing, I, as I look at these, and I look at the things in this list, they're all action words. Righteousness is an action. 
Faith is an action. Love is an action. It's not just a feeling. Perseverance is certainly an action. Even gentleness is an action. Godliness must be an action. Now it's also an attitude. I won't deny that because it has to do with reverence. But it's also an action. And I think about this, I said, in what sense is it a, would it be an action? And he says, I want you to pursue these things rather than all these other things. I want you to pursue these things. And if godliness is an action and it's well-worship and it's connect, connected with lifestyle like these words are, apparently godliness is that kind of action in which we live our lives and everything that we do, say, or think should be uh, given to God as our worship. At the end of the day, as you're in bed, lying there on your knees in a chair, praying and talking to God, you theoretically, all of us should, and we'll never get to this point in, uh, in actuality in this side of heaven, but we should be able to say to the Lord, everything that I said today, everything that I did today, everything I thought today, everything I give to you is my worship. And whatever we can't say about that, we have to confess as sin. Paul's very serious about this. That's hard work. You tell me that isn't hard work. You'll spend the rest of your life developing this attitude and still not totally arrive at it. And uh, when we go back to this place as well, I think we also need to realize that apparently godliness is something that God can only evaluate. Now, as people, we may look at someone and see their lives and say, based on what I see, I think that person is godly, but only God can really evaluate it. And it's interesting when I look at chapter 4, Paul is telling Timothy, let no one despise your youth, uh, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, in conduct, in love, and faith and purity show yourselves an example to those who believe. No, here he says, Timothy, this is what I want you to do before people. And you know what isn't there? Godliness. <laughs> because people can't evaluate godliness. But when you go to chapter 6, Paul doesn't say this is, these are things that people are seeing. This is things that God is evaluating. Uh, you man of God. Flee from these things, you man of God. If you're a man of God, what are you going to do? Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and so forth because God is the one that's going to evaluate these things. Really, God can only see these things, no one else, at least in, in terms of actual, what the, how things actually happen and what things are going on. And so when we're talking about this, uh, this, is, this is what we're looking at. And so when we go on a little bit farther, though, I think by definition, we ought to say that godliness is a lifestyle lived in such a way that it expresses our worship to God or, or our manner, our, it's, a, or it's a manner of life that properly reverences God. And we ought to just give these things to, turn these things every day over to the Lord and live this way and everything we should do is a, is a matter of worship. But Paul also doesn't stop there. Because I'll come back to chapter 4 in that list about Timothy's youthfulness. When Paul is talking about pointing out these things, being constantly nourished and disciplining ourselves for godliness, uh, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. <laughs> now part of that, even though they can't see godliness, godly, a godly person will live in such a way that it will have an impact on other people. 
And no matter where you at or where you are going to be, what you're doing, what your occupation is, uh, you are going to be, hopefully, making an impact for the Lord on people in their lives. And so Paul gets down here in verse 12, and he tells Timothy, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now, Timothy at this point is probably 35 to 40 years old. Uh, he's, he's older than you are. If Timothy was your age and he's been with Paul for 14 years, Paul took him out on, the first, on his second missionary journey when he was seven or eight years old. And I don't think that happened. Timothy was probably 20, 21, 22, maybe even 23 or 24 years old. And now years later, he's, Paul's still talking, about, talking to him as if he's a youth. And the word is used in secular literature for a military officer under age 40. But Timothy says, don't let people look down on your youthfulness. He says, I've already talked to you about being, developing godliness, staying in the Word. Don't let anything, let, let them look down on your youthfulness. But let your godliness work out in such a way in your life that when you talk, they listen because you're saying the right kinds of things. You're saying things that work for edification. Your conduct. You're not bringing the disgrace to the Lord in the way that you live. Uh, your love. Uh, you are doing the will of God with respect to people. Whatever God tells you to do with people, you're doing it. Your faith. They know that you're believing and trusting in God. And far as purity, moral purity, you are there. Show yourself an example to all who believe. You should be a testimony. And I'm saying to all of us, Wherever we are, we want to make an impact upon people. Being in the Word of God and being godly does not mean we lock ourselves in a monastery and never go out. We want to make an impact upon the world for Jesus Christ. We want to make an impact in the church. We want to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we're out in the world, we want to live in such a way that people are convicted of their sin and want to come to Christ. We need to make a difference. So the way we live... <laughs> Ought to be a godly life. We should live it in the Word. We should live it in worship. We should live it out before people. And as I'm standing here going back to what I said before, this is what I want for you. What do I say to you on the last time I speak in chapel? I want you to be godly people who live before a world as a testimony to Jesus Christ. Live before God in such a way that what you do, what you say, what you think is your attitude of worship toward Him, a demonstration of worship toward Him. Because what Paul said, for our hope, and I can say for who, who is my hope, or a crown of exaltation, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? You're what counts. It's not the years in my ministry. You're what counts. As I leave here, I'm going to look back and I'm not going to think about this gym as a building. I've seen a lot of great games in here. I appreciate it. I'm not going to even think about my office, which I've really appreciated and enjoyed. I'm going to think about you. You're what's important. So as Paul said to Timothy as he closed the letter, he said to Timothy, fight the good fight. He said it to him in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and chapter 6. So as I leave here with you, my final message to you is fight the good fight. Be a godly human being who lives for the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come here today and we just thank you for our time. 
Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all the blessings that you've poured out upon us. We just ask now that you'll direct our minds and thoughts as we continue to live this day, this week, the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name.